This podcast is brought to you by Benjamin, a workflow automation engine that allows advisors to focus on their clients rather than data management. Learn more at getbenjamin.com. Today on Bridging the Gap, I am joined by a longtime friend of mine and a former Schwab Executive Leadership Program alumni classmate of mine and a hugely successful leader in the industry, Matt Cosgrift. Matt is the Director of Wealth Management at Bergen KDV, where he guides a team of professionals passionate about serving the needs of others. Matt and I start off the conversation with what drives him on the leadership side of the industry and how important it is to build an environment for your team to be successful. This is a lot of stuff that he has taken and grown and evolved over the years in the industry to just become an instrumental leader in his firm. We also dive into the future of the financial industry, how we can make the client relationship deeper and how to differentiate ourselves as advisors from the competition, and also what is needed to serve the next generation within our industry. This was a fun conversation. Two friends getting together, talking about the industry. It's one of those that you just don't want to miss. So I want to thank Matt again for joining us on Bridging the Gap, and I hope you get as much out of this one as I did in the conversation. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Matt Cosgriff, Bergen KDV. How you doing, my friend? Good, Matt. Long time no see. It's been all of a week since I saw you in, uh, in Denver last week. Good to be with you. Dude, I'm, uh, it's an honor to have you on here, man. I'm stoked to have you. It was awesome to see you in person out in Denver. It's just always a good time. So, you know, our, our history goes back, right, from the Schwab ELP days, Executive Leadership Program, which was just an awesome experience. I have another question I usually lead in with, but I just want to talk about the Executive Leadership Program. What is something that you just love about leadership and executive the Executive Leadership Program? I'm always curious, as a leader in the industry, you've invested a ton of time you know, building up your, your credibility, building up your network and leading your teams. What drives you on the leadership side of things? Yeah, I've always, um, you know, even since I was a kid, really enjoyed leadership and just being part of a team. And I think I learned pretty quickly in my career that as much as I enjoyed working with clients, I think I got the most energy out of really creating an environment for our team to be successful. And so I think working in the Schwab Executive Leadership Program with a lot of people that probably think similarly in terms of leadership, that was that was really rewarding and just having a sounding board to to figure out little issues here and there, questions or hey, how are you approaching that? So, and then obviously getting to meet great people like yourself, yeah. And the rest of the cohort was uh, was definitely the highlight. I'll send you the the dollar for uh, for the promotional of making my credibility <laughs> go up uh, through that comment. So thank you for that. But no, I, I agree. I think that we we've, we've known each other. I'm really excited about this conversation because we've got to know each other really deeply in the executive leadership program and just to learn a lot from you and your experiences. And I think that our audience is going to be able to learn so much from you and talking about, you know, the trends in the wealth management industry, talking about leadership, we're going to dive more into that and culture and also talking about the next gen, because I think that what y'all are doing at Bergen KDV and what you are leading up is a lot of really interesting stuff about the next gen. And I want to dive into that. But before we do, and you mentioned it a little bit in that answer about leadership, about, you know, you always were doing that from a young age. I always like to ask people, what did the 13-year-old Matt Cosgriff want to be when he was growing up? And then from there, you know, tell us about your journey to where you are today now as the uh, the Director of Wealth Management at Bergen KDV. Yeah, well, we're winding back the clock. So the 13-year-old me was probably pretty dead set on being a professional hockey player. 
Unfortunately, that was just not in the cards. I actually think about the 13, I think I probably grew about five inches between 13 and 14. So I was just entering sort of peak awkward years, right? Could barely walk straight because I'd grown so much. So this industry really wasn't something on my radar at that point. I was fortunate enough to have a high school hockey coach that was a branch director for RBC and just sort of was like the first flavor for me of, hey, sort of marrying economics, numbers, investing, and, and most importantly, people. That was really what intrigued me and then getting into college. And as you know, a lot of things in life are timing and an opportunity to get an internship at a, at a local RAA and, and really fell in love with it uh, pretty quickly. So definitely wasn't uh, what the plan was at 13 years old, but really fortunate for the opportunities and uh, where I've landed thus far. Yeah. You mentioned something so interesting there, you know, in that experience of learning about the finances and the economic side and the economy, all of it, everything from there. But you said the people aspect is what was intriguing about this kind of opportunity. And, you know, I was, I was listening to a, a session actually at Schwab Impact uh, and they said people buy people, not brands. And I think that that's such an important thing to remember. I'm curious to what the, the people, when you say people aspect, what does that mean to you? What, what does that mean to your role? Is it the leadership of people? Is it the relationships with the clients? Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, from, from my lens, it's always been about helping achieve more than they thought possible and helping a collective group of people achieve more than on paper than they could, right? And I, I remember, you know, in high school, we had a, a saying in, in sports, one plus one equals three. And, and the obviously, one plus one does not equal three, it equals two. But the point of it was really that like, if you get a collective group of people all sort of rowing the boat in the same direction, uh, which those Gopher football fans will appreciate that reference, you know, you can really accomplish great things. And so that was something that, again, from a young age, I really enjoyed. And I think I've found an outlet in my professional life to really help, you know, a team and individuals more specifically. I mean, that could be something as simple as um, a young associate on our team getting a promotion, right? Because you know, we've helped give them an environment by growing the organization to be able to uh, elevate to a new position or coaching somebody to accomplish something that, you know, maybe a year ago they couldn't do on their own. And so I think just that is really what I get most energy from and most excitement from, you know, admittedly as a, as a younger leader in our organization. You know, it's such an interesting perspective to have because I don't think a lot of people have that perspective in our industry. It's all about like the investment management or the financial planning, but the people side, I think we tend to miss at, at, at times. And you've been in the industry for a while, right? You've seen the evolution of the industry. You've seen the evolution of Bergen KDV to grow to a, a, a very large and influential firm in the industry. Is I, I'm curious to your perspective, right? If we're talking about people, of what you think about the trends that are happening in our industry, especially on the M&A side, right? Because if you think about it as, you know, we used to be just a small industry of RIAs that you could really collaborate with individuals. And now the pendulum is swinging to this trend of aggregators and getting more scale and service offerings by doing acquisitions, um, which then may take away from what you just mentioned, the people aspect. I I'm curious to know your perspective of the trends that we're seeing in the industry uh, especially on the M&A side. Yeah, yeah. So um, our organization has done M&A for call it the last 30 years and been pretty active, but that has been predominantly focused on the CPA side of the business. So um, being part of a regional accounting firm, our wealth management uh, team has probably done, let's just call it three to four transactions over the last 10 to 15 years. So again, by no means, you know, would we be considered an aggregator or an M&A expert on the wealth side? 
that being said, I think some of the trends, obviously, and this is no secret to many of your listeners, is just the influx of private equity and, and really M&A um, aggregators has had a profound impact, I think, on our business, both from a valuation perspective, but I think just helping professionalize the industry. Now, I think the risk from my lens, and I'd be curious how you think about this, is that's all well and good as long as we don't lose sight of the people and the clients, right? If this becomes just an exercise in financial engineering just to get big and have an IPO, I think the client loses in that situation. If this is to get bigger, to be able to invest in capabilities as organizations to enhance the client experience or technology, cybersecurity, people training, et cetera, then I think that's really good. And I, I think it's just continuing to thread that needle is probably a really important aspect of, of the M&A and sort of the professionalization, I think, of our what's historically been you know, more of a cottage industry. Yeah, I, I think that you nailed it right there. So can, we, can we thread the needle to ensure that M&A enables and empowers firms to provide more value to more clients, number one, right, the people, and also more career trajectory and opportunity of the employees, of the people inside the business. I think that that's super important. And because y'all, and that's why I asked it, because I, I knew that y'all have been active on it on the accounting side and recently active on the wealth management side. How are y'all threading that needle and ensuring that people don't get lost in everything? Because I think that a lot of other firms can learn from how well y'all have done it to keep people at the forefront, keep opportunity and servicing at the forefront of your clients and your team. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it starts with the vision, right? The vision of the larger organization being our North Star. And then I think leadership is a really important part of that because leadership in effect should keep us uh, moving towards that North Star. And so, you know, we've historically used EOS. I'm sure many of your listeners might be familiar with EOS and traction. And, and really the first step there is trying to figure out what our core pur- purpose is sort of why do we exist as an organization? What are our core values? And so I think that's a component of it. But we're fundamentally in a different business than a lot of the private equity and aggregators are because they are typically more, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but they're typically more trying to grow for, you know, five to 10 years, like most private equity firms are, and then to sell and sort of create that, that arbitrage. We're really buy and hold. And so we're playing essentially a different ball game. And so I don't, I don't know that we, well, we certainly want to be profitable. We want to grow and we need to. I don't know that we're playing the same game. And so I think it does allow us to hopefully keep a longer term view and stay true to those roots. Again, trying to be sort of a premier wealth management professional service organization with clients and our people at the at the center of that. Yeah, and I think that there is that is a drastic difference that I don't think people realize or recognize when it comes to M&A is that their PE money backing firms that are growing, they need some way to exit eventually, right? They need to have a a recap or a liquidation event, which you know, we, we lose that perspective in the moment because it's hard for us to see the future and realize what that means. So y'all's approach is totally different. I, I am curious. I, I want to be futuristic for a second because y'all are, kind, y'all are kind of in the middle of it, you know, because you're not an aggregator, but you're not standing still. You are growing inorganically at some extent and organically. Is what do you see as the future of our industry the next five or 10 years? Are we going to have, I mean, we have 15,000 RAs now. You know, are we going to go down to having 10,000 in the next five years and in, in kind of having just these massive firms? Or, or how do you see it? Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I was at an M&A conference here probably a month or so ago in Chicago. And one of the things that, that struck me is despite record M&A in terms of volume and deal flow and all of that, 
we're actually in, that would lead us to believe that there are fewer and fewer RAs. But as I think you're probably aware too, the number is actually going up, right? There are more and more firms that are either spinning out of existing RAs and starting, whether it be through a thing like uh, a group like XY Planning Network or their wirehouses that are coming over to the RA model. And so I, I have to suspect that that trend will only continue because I think, you know, at the end of the day, clients vote with their feet and with their dollars. And I think more and more consumers are coming to understand that the RA, the fiduciary model is, is really the best. Um, and I don't even think, frankly, it's an argument. I'm admittedly biased is the best model for them, right? Cause it keeps them at the center. And so in terms of what does the future look like? I mean, I, I'd subscribe a little bit to, or I would say I subscribe to the philosophy that you're going to have certainly some big nationals. I suspect we'll have regional players and then you'll have small firms that frankly can keep overhead low because of technology and be hyper profitable. I think you see that, you know, in the legal and the, in the CPA profession. So I do think consolidation will happen, but personally, I think that number will continue to grow just because I think consumers are continuing to, to look at the fiduciary model as, as the best option forward. Yeah. I, I think that you nail it right there. It's that there, you know, the more RIAs despite MA happening, and it's also, there's this concept and we've talked about it a lot in, in our blog and on our podcast here, Bridging the Gap is, you know, niches, right? Like if you ever, there's a lot of opportunity to be a niche advisor because of the opportunity of access to custodians. Like in the past, when we, when, you know, my dad started our firm 25 years ago, it was hard to get a custodial relationship and get a master number and a G number. But now, I mean, you can go to Altruist or you can go to, another, you know, to Apex or to Pershing or whatever, and you can open up an account pretty quickly and start serving just friends and family and letting it be a niche. And so, you know, I think that you're going, and there's a ton of opportunity out there for people to, to let that grow. The other thought that I want to kind of continue on with is on the same topic of people. I think that the differentiation as, as investment management becomes commoditized further and further, it's all about adding more services in the relationship. And a conversation I had at Impact, and I've had recently more often than not, is all this about, you know, how do we make ourselves recognizable to our clients and be different. And it starts with the relationship in the business. I'm curious how you, you know, work with your team to help them deepen and further the relationship with their clients to also differentiate themselves from the competition based on a relationship as opposed to investment management and planning aspect. Yeah, that's yeah, a really good question. I think about three years ago, we sort of took a step back and recognized we can't be all things to all people. We really want to be all things to some people. And the, the tension that we've run into just, you know, we've got about 10 advisors, we manage about 2 billion in assets. And, and the challenge is it's, it's easier, or I should say it's simpler in some cases, if you're starting fresh to craft a niche, right? Because you can create the messaging, you can target all your branding, your marketing into one client segment. When you've got a thousand clients, how do you do that when advisors are at various stages of their sort of practice development, right? You might have some advisors with 150 clients. And so how do they create the time, energy, and attention to go, go after a niche? And so when we first kind of tried to get deeper with clients, we had each advisor go after their own niche. And what we found out is we just didn't have the bandwidth and the resources to do that effectively. So we kind of took a step back and say, like, who are the one or two groups that we think we can serve better than anyone in the world? And again, obviously that's, um, aspirational in nature, but really it came down to business owners being part of a regional accounting firm with a lot of capabilities to serve business owners. Like that's an area we feel like we can really compete heavily in. And then the second part would be anybody that's looking for their CFP and their CPA at the same table at the same time. 
Um, like those are kind of the two segments mm. we really want to go after and trying to be cognizant that if we get to know those people really, really well, we can dive deeper and, and try to differentiate more on the field we play instead of trying to be like that five sport athlete that just there's just no way you can do that now nowadays. I mean, there's not many Deion Sanders and, and Bo Jacksons anymore, Bo Jackson, right? They're, right? They're playing, you know, two sport professional athletes, Bo Jackson there. But when you say looking at the CFP, that's I've never heard that before. Looking at the CFP and the CPA at the same time. What tell me more about that? What what's what does that individual look like? Because that seems like that's like a business owner. But what's the differentiation that y'all see on your side from that that niche or that persona of how that's different? Yeah. So, you know, our, our wealth group was obviously born out of the accounting side and really our, our CEO now launched our wealth group about 20 years ago, really with the, the idea of like, hey, he continued to see as a CPA, all these clients, he would do 11 months of tax planning. And then on New Year's Eve, I'll exaggerate for a little bit of effect, you know, the client, the broker, the advisor would make a trade and it would blow up 11 and a half months of tax planning, right? And bump them in a new bracket. They were paying, you know, additional tax or whatever it might be. And it wasn't, nobody was being malicious. It was just the fact that the left and the right hand didn't know what the other was trying to do. And so again, he launched the wealth business at the time in 2000. It was pretty, you know, pretty innovative, pretty unique with the idea of marrying investments and tax. And that has certainly evolved into, to include financial planning, estate planning. And, and now we're by far, or, um, by no means the only ones that are doing that, right? Like a lot of the national players are now starting to offer tax as a part of that. But that's really core to who we are. And so we are looking for clients that, again, want that CFP and CPA at the same table at the same time. So that typically lends itself to people that have complexity to their tax situation, whether it might be you know, business owners being an obvious one, corporate execs. It's not going to be just sort of the run of the mill client that doesn't have a lot of complexity just because we might be a little bit more expensive and provide more than they necessarily need. So that those are the two segments that we're kind of going after and kind of how it was borne out and how we see that play out in practice. People that want convenience, I would say, is another aspect of that because, again, they get two offerings at the same table. Yeah, I love that. I think that that's such an interesting way of putting it because everybody everybody would just say, "I just we work with just you know complex individuals, but y'all are saying that it's a focus of the client that says, I care about having my CPA and, C- and CFP working together, and I care about having a CFP, which is important. That's an important thing to keep remembering because like it's that it's not just an advisor it's a it's a cfp which then drives into how you grow your team and train your team that this is important to have a cfp and that then leads me to kind of the leadership that you all have in your organization to position your team for success i'm curious how actually i'm gonna ask this question on leadership because i want to transition into leadership is what have you learned as a leader over the past, say, 10 years as you've grown into a leadership role? And then I want you to also share maybe one of your biggest failures as a leader, because that's probably one of your biggest lessons as well uh, that's there. Because uh, it's always interesting. Everybody, we all talk about what we're good at, but we never really talk about those times when we failed really drastically. And I, I, I've got, I mean, I'd be here for about four or five weeks talking about those failures on my side. So I'm curious from you, you know, what have you learned growing as a leader? And then what was one of those failures that helped teach you something really, you know, on the forefront? Yeah. Um, my gosh, that's, that's almost an impossible question to answer because there's so much, right? I mean, I, I could probably talk for the next, like you said, 10 days alone, just about all the mistakes I've made in the last like year or two, let alone the last 10 years. 
I think probably a couple of things that I've learned um, really early in my leadership journey is, is one is just the importance of communication. Like I, I would argue there's probably few skills that are more important to a leader than communication, both from the standpoint of being able to communicate effectively a vision that's compelling and that gets people energized and inspired, but then also to be able to communicate in a way that really connects with people. And, and doesn't land in certain ways that might be misinterpreted or um, things like that. Because communication, the higher you go in the organization, in some ways is the most effective way you have to create change. Because if a 600 person organization, like our CEO can't do it all, right? Obviously. And so communication is really the tool I think leaders have to be super effective. And again, that's something that I, I maybe is super obvious, but as a young leader, I didn't necessarily appreciate the importance of, of that you know, early in my, my career. When you think of communication, I want to, I started to cut you off, but I want to dig into this because I think it's something really important. You say the importance of communication and, and a lot of leaders talk about how important communication is from your perspective. What within communication is so important? Is it the amount you communicate? Is it the way you communicate? Is it the frequency you communicate? It's probably a little bit of all of it, but I always am curious to understand communication and what about communication is important in your perspective? Yeah. So I'd say this, from my lens, there's probably two or three things. One is clarity of message, right? If we have a vision of where we're going, the, that cannot fundamentally be inspiring to pe- people if they don't understand it, right? So it has to be clear. You know, you think of some of the great presidents was JFK or others that were able to sort of paint this picture in the future and really inspire people with their words. I think that's one part I think tactically from my lens, like probably one of the biggest things from a communication perspective is just repetition. And what I mean by that is, and I can't remember if it was in the ELP class that we went through or a different leadership uh, book or something I read, but it essentially said that like leaders under communicate by a factor of 10 to a hundred. And I think one of the things that I, I certainly find myself in the trap of is I've told people seven times, like, why do I have to tell them an eighth time, right? They should know. And I think it's just the reality is the same as, you know, for, for my leaders, right? They've probably told me 10 times and until you tell them over and over and over again about the vision or what we're trying to accomplish, I think it doesn't always sink in. So the repetition I think is huge. That's something I, again, have had to learn and, and frankly try to create the space and sort of systems, if you will, to make sure to communicate that, you know, continually. Um, so those would probably be two of the things. I mean, again, there's a whole bunch of others, but those would be two things that come to mind. I always remember you know, the one thing that people told me was being a CEO or being a leader, your real title is CRO. And and that's not chief revenue officer, it's chief repeating officer. You just are always repeating the same message over and over and over again. And I love what you said about inspire people with words, because I think that one thing that leaders, if you think about the some of the greatest leaders, and some of them you mentioned as well, is that they're really good at telling a story. They're really good at getting people and inspiring people via the words and the way that they they tell their story, which I think is so important. It's not telling a story to deceive them. It's telling a story for them to buy in and understand because you just tell them something. You've got to find different ways to help them relate it back to their life, which ultimately means you have to understand that those people extremely well, which it's just there's so much that goes into it. And I, you know, as we as we now shift to the next gen, right? You said that the individual that started the wealth management group 20 years ago, you know, now you have you leading it. And he had to make some changes and approaches of how he led you at that point. 
what are you learning about supporting the next gen of leaders? What, what are you identifying as challenges um, and how are you overcoming those challenges with the next gen leadership that you're, you're working with today? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a really interesting question because I I would I consider myself sort of next generation leadership, right? I'm sort of the person that's the next gen leader in our wealth group, but I also view part of my role as developing leaders that can come behind me and take you know our organization, our department to even higher heights. And so I think you know as I, I think about what are some of the challenges, I mean, frankly, the the first one I've seen firsthand is just how do you get younger people or new uh, next generation leaders at bats at being a leader before they're actually quote unquote a leader. In other words, how do you develop leaders before they might have the formal position of leadership? And that's something I feel I was very fortunate in my journey to be able to latch on to big projects, right? Like a conversion from Money Guide Pro to eMoney, where I effect- effectively led the whole thing. I didn't have the title of leader, but it gave me an opportunity to really cut my teeth learn about communication, learn about how to manage a project and move people along, bring accountability. So I think that's something as an industry we have to continue to figure out is it can't just be, well, you know, 65 year old founder of the firm is retiring next year and we're just going to take insert, you know, 30 year old or 40 year old, whatever it might be next gen leader at this time, right? It's, it's giving people the opportunity to go through like a Schwab executive leadership program or a G2 or other programs in addition to some of the in-house stuff that you can do. So I think that's probably the biggest gap. Leadership, as you know, is super hard. And so if we don't give people the opportunity to, to cut their teeth and, and learn um, and grow, I, th- I think we'll, you know, we'll be lacking leadership, which obviously any industry continues to, to need more of. You, you said something there, cut their teeth, right? And you also mentioned like give them at-bats. We got to give younger gen, the next gen at-bats to go with projects, which then now exposes exposes this, this big, scary word, which is failure. And uh, especially in the wealth management business, right? Rocking the boat when things are going well. Like we don't want to change things because it's been working for 20 years. But if you want to really grow your next set of leaders like you and me as well, you got to let them go out and fail. How have you all adopted a mentality inside of Bergen KDV to accept failure by these next gen leaders because they need to do that to learn? Because many firms fail at that, fail at that. So how have you all done a good job with that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm ultimately a byproduct of that. So when I joined Bergen KDV, one of the things that I was hired to do is to launch our next generation financial planning offering. So basically answering the question, how can we serve the 35 or 40 year old young doctor or attorney that's making a couple hundred grand and has complex financial planning needs, but doesn't sort of fit into that traditional AUM model and largely has been shunned by the industry for, let's just call it the last three decades. And so I came in really, and that was effectively my job was to build out that service model, that platform to be able to do that at scale. And it was by all intents and purposes, a total failure. We just, we never got the scale or the volume that, you know, we aspired to, but I learned an incredible amount. Frankly, I learned more in that than probably at any other point in my career, just in terms of things not to do, to do. And so to sit in the seat that I'm in now leading a broader wealth management group, I mean, if we were only putting people in seats because of the success they'd have, I fundamentally wouldn't be in the seat that I'm in. And so I think that was something that started at the top. It started with Dave, our now CEO. It starts with culture and then really empowering failure. Now, again, you can't, you know, you can't send $5 million of client money to some 
country in, in Timbuktu or whatever, right? I mean, that's a big failure that can't happen. But in terms of creating safe space for people to fail, that I feel really fortunate as an organization we've done. And again, I think it just starts with the leadership of the organization and trickles on down that it's okay to make mistakes, particularly in an endeavor that is more innovative, um, creative, as opposed to, again, like the big trade air or something like that, where those, those things generally just can't happen. Right. It's okay to make mistakes, right? I would add a comma there or just a continuation. Okay to make mistakes if you're going to learn from them, right? Yeah. If you, because I think that that's the biggest thing is that you, there's some people that just make mistakes and they don't learn from it. They just continue to make it again. But if you make a mistake and you take it as a learning opportunity, not as a failure, I think that that's huge. I want to get to the next gen practice and, and, and some of those challenges that you, you've seen doing that because I think that that's, you know, Launching like a next gen financial planning organization or, or getting next gen inside of an established RA can be difficult. I know that we've had challenges with that as well. But before I do that, I, I want to ask what in your mind defines a winning culture? That's a really good question. You know, culture and teamwork, I think, are something that I believe a ton in and is something I've tried to foster. So if I was to define that, I would say that it's basically when we have everyone on our team that is willing to put aside their personal success for the betterment of others or the team. Now, that doesn't mean that it's forever, right? We can't be completely and utterly selfless in our careers and our professional lives because we have to you know, support our families and we want to take vacations and things like that. So I'm not advocating just utter selflessness. But from my lens, it's the ability to say, hey, you know what? Like A team member is better capable of serving this client, so I'm not going to take this client on. Or, hey, I'm going to lend a helping hand, even though it's going to require me to stay late or something like that. Like, I think when that selflessness permeates the culture, pretty much everything else falls into place. And so that's something that we we try to be incredibly intentional about. And those are, frankly, those are the moments that I'm most proud of our team is when you see things like that. It's less about the, oh, we got a big new client because that's just an outcome of creating the culture that you know we just talked about. Gosh, I love that. That is like the moment when you're like, it's like a proud dad moment. You're like, I, you didn't, they didn't say anything to you. They didn't come to you and say that that was because of you, but you know that they're following the leadership's example and, and being the leader, you know, that that's you, which is awesome. So let's talk briefly uh, before we wrap it up and let you get back to, to changing the world, you know, serving the next gen, right? How, how have y'all gone about, sir? <laughs> This is the biggest headline. Everybody's talking about millennials. By the time we finally figure it out, they're going to be retirees. That's the challenge I think, with this whole situation. <laughs> How are you going about serving the next gen? Because it's the hottest topic around for the past 15 years. Yeah. Um, so I can tell you how we tried to do it and what worked and what didn't. So effectively, what we tried to do is we created a separate brand, which again, I probably would have done that differently. That's probably a conversation that will surpass our, uh, our time here today. But we basically created a separate brand, a separate service model, and basically pieced together using Salesforce and some other technology, basically a platform to do that. And, and again, I don't, I don't think it failed because of that, but that's essentially what we do. It's lifewiseadvisors.com. It's still online if, you, if your listeners are interested in checking it out. What I think what ended up happening is that I think you can build a really successful next-gen practice on, on your own independently, right? Because you can keep costs low. It can be a smaller shop. I think XY Planning Network is doing amazing work, and I think that's a testament to the model can work. I think what we ended up running into is that the cost of client acquisition is still very high. And so if you chase a client for a long time, it's, it, works if they're pay, <clears throat> excuse me, it works if they're paying you 10 grand a year. It works less effectively if they're paying you a hundred bucks a month. 
right? Because you potentially have to chase them. It's a lot of money, whether that be in sort of hard costs or soft costs. So I think the cost of acquisition is something we ran into. I think you're seeing that with some of the robos. Like, I mean, Betterman, I think, has run into that too. If it costs $1,000 to get a client that the lifetime value is 500, well, that's not a super sustainable business model. So that was one. And then I think just generally speaking, inside of a large organization, just like the overhead is so much higher and you have to create so much more scale to really have it matter. It's sort of like the old innovator's dilemma for those that have read that book is just, even if we got 200 clients that are you know producing, let's just say $500,000 of revenue for a $100 million organization, that, that doesn't really scratch the surface. And so I think that was where it was really hard for us to continue to invest in something that probably was not going to be a fundamental business for us. And again, so we just ended up, you know, we still offer it. It's still an option, but it's just not something we're putting as much time and energy into um, at this juncture. And then the third thing I would just say, I think we were a little bit early too, right? There's this constant talk about the greatest wealth transfer in human history. That's coming, but we tried to do this like 10 years. And, and I would argue that that was probably a little bit premature. So those were kind of, again, a few of the hard lessons that we, that we learned. The generational shift of wealth is always something that makes me smile because I agree it's happening, but you know how long that's going to happen over? That's like a 25 year trend. It's not like, yeah. it's not, it, everybody makes it out to be like, well, one day, all of a sudden, yeah. all the baby boomers are going to pass away and right. all that wealth just in that one instant moment is going to shift to this whole next generation. So be ready and get prepared. No, it's like a trickle effect and it's hard to build a business and stay committed. You know, you mentioned XY. I think that they've done a phenomenal job. Michael's always been a leader and an innovator and a forward thinker. And, and if you think about the reason that that, I think it's successful is not only is Michael an innovator and a forward thinker and they're focused on planning, but it's they have this network of 1,300 or 2,000 individual practices, but that's all they focus on. And if you look at what those practices are, they're niche at that. That yep. is their business. And it, it's they, they are usually smaller firms that are so hyper-focused on that business. And, and maybe more lifestyle, some of them, and maybe some growth-oriented ones. But it, it's hard then if it's like a $10 billion firm to focus on that because they're like, we got this over here. It's hard to, to focus our attention on this acquisition when you know it just basically is kind of a little bit lifestyle. So it's different. But those XY firms stand to benefit greatly over the next 15, 20 years because those people and those clients are going to do really well. So that's very innovative on that side. All right. I mean, we could talk forever. I, I mean, I, 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 you know, we were at dinner at the EOP dinner and, and great conversation at that table. I mean, we could talk forever. I, I think that, you know, it's a matter of just continuously having you on because I think that you are leading and innovating in a great way. And, and I just appreciate your insight. Before I let you go, I always ask the two questions that I ask everybody. And the first one is, is because these podcasts are, are a little bit selfish because I like to learn from great minds that are a lot, lot smarter than I am, uh, because I took about two pages of notes here as you were talking. So, so I'm always curious to ask my guests, what's one book, it doesn't matter where it's from, what it's about, that you think everybody should read if they haven't read it already? Yeah, that's another good one because it's always hard to narrow it down to one book, right? And I could like list off probably five or six that uh, that have had a really big impact on just how I view leadership and um, our business. I think the one that I read most recently uh, this summer was called The Heart of Business. So it's The Heart of Business and it's by Hugh Bear Jolie. He was the CEO of Best Buy, which is a Minnesota company. So a nice shout out there. Um, but they were really, really struggling when he took over. He came in and, you know, I think Wall Street and a lot of others probably thought the strategy was just, well, just cut a bunch of people and get it profitable. 
And he really came in and said, no, we're going to focus on our people. We're going to care really deeply for them. In turn, they'll focus on our clients, our customers. And then in turn, we will get the outcome of shareholder returns. And so um, it's something I kind of had in my mind as sort of like my philosophy on things. But I think he just really distilled it down into a framework that's understandable. And it was really cool to hear, you know, again, a big time CEO speak to that. So that would definitely be one that's high on the top of the list. And if, and if you're not into reading, he was on Masters of Business with Barry Ritholtz, the podcast. So you can get it, uh, you know, in an hour podcast version if that's your, uh, if that's your style. Uh, that's, that's, uh, yeah, you're very kind. You're always serving everybody, right? You know, some people that don't have the attention span to read a full book, you know, you're giving them options. I love that. The last question I always ask, and I caught this from Barron's and their conferences that they did that they asked their participants on stage, but from our conversation today, what's one piece of actual advice that you think our listeners should take away from this conversation today? I think probably, you know, the, the piece of advice that that I've sort of tried to keep front mind for myself is just always be learning. And I know that's pretty generic, but I think that's one of the things that is, is hopefully a strength of mine is just curiosity. And so I try to read a ton, whether that's books or listen to podcasts. And so I would just, I guess the advice would be just be really, really intentional about always learning. It's super easy to get on the mousetrap and just sort of forget to, you know, read a book or be on top of industry studies, things like that. I think creating that space amidst all that's going on and certainly all that's going on um, in our country, just politically and all that stuff, like create the space to turn off the news and just read um, and learn, I think would be would be the, the specific advice. I love that. If we could get everybody just to, to watch TV for one, one minute less or one hour less every day and just read, it doesn't matter what they read, we actually read like a book. You know how much better off, maybe less polarization in our country it would be? It'd be a great thing, right? We'd have a lot better things to talk about than the news at that point. Uh, well, Matt Cosgriff, dude, you have been uh, generous and gracious with both your time and your insights and your, your, your wisdom you're sharing. I, I really do appreciate you. I appreciate our friendship and I appreciate you joining us here on Bridging the Gap. And uh, I know that many people listening are going to as well. What's one way that our listeners can continue to follow you, stay in touch with you and you know, interact with you? Uh, in all the digital mediums these days. Yeah, yeah. Feel free to reach out on LinkedIn. I have a Twitter, but candidly, I haven't been on there for quite some time. So um, feel free to reach out on LinkedIn. Obviously, you can just search my name or otherwise Matt.Cosgriff at Bergen KDB. Uh, appreciate you, Matt, and all you're doing for the industry. It was great to see you last week. And uh, go Bulldogs. I know you got uh, got a lot of fun things to look forward to as the college football season wraps up. So That is the truth. Go Bulldogs. Matt Cosgriff, thanks for everything you're doing and let's stay in touch. Can't wait to see you again soon and stay well, my friend. Awesome. Thanks again, Matt. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 